presented by Amazon. Hey there, it's Playbook editor Mike DeBonis. To kick off the week, Playbook co-author Rachel Bade is here for today's Playbook Daily Briefing. All right, Rachel, the big things we're looking at today. Number one, Congress is back this week. The Senate took two weeks off. The House took one week off. Number one on the list, the debt limit. We hit the debt limit last week on Thursday. The Treasury Department is now using extraordinary measures <laughs> to keep the country from defaulting on its debt. Uh, what are we looking at this week, particularly on the debt limit issue? So this week, we're going to see Democratic leaders saying publicly that they want Republicans to go out and vote on legislation, specifically detailing what kind of cuts they want to raise the debt ceiling. The hope by Democratic leaders is basically that they can get Republicans on the record uh, proposing things that are not going to be popular with voters, things like cuts to Social Security, cuts to Medicare, et cetera, food stamps, uh, and that they can sort of use that to create a sort of public pressure against them to get them to negotiate in a way that would be more helpful or or sort of lead to some sort of uh, way to read to raise the debt ceiling. You're also starting to see some moderate Democrats go out there and actually challenge the White House on this position that they're not negotiating at all. I mean, obviously, Biden has tried to say, we're going to raise the debt ceiling. It's going to be clean. We're not going to attach any spending cuts to it. But people like Joe Manchin and Josh Gottheimer over the weekend said that that is not a tenable position. And they've got to have conversations about doing some sort of negotiation. Right. And, and it seems like, you know, how long are we going to stay in this sort of shadow boxing phase where each side sort of does their sort of posturing? You know, the White House says, oh, we're not going to negotiate. The Republicans say, oh, you know, we have to, you know, do these uh, dramatic cuts and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And when do these conversations actually start happening productively? I, for one, don't think we're anywhere close to that. I think we're, we're in for another uh, two or three months of theatrics before we get there. But I don't know, Rachel, you, you tell me, maybe you disagree. I second that. I think it's going to be a while. I mean, June, if June is the X date that they're all talking about right now, I mean, we've got several months to get there and nothing happens in Washington before the deadline. It just never does. And sometimes it doesn't happen until after a deadline. So uh, I think we've got a while. The other big news over the weekend was the uh, much anticipated turnover at at the White House in the chief of staff position. We have been playing this parlor game of when is Ron Klain going to hang it up? It seems like for several months now, Rachel, we were talking about this just as a team sort of before the midterms. You know, we weren't quite sure when this transition was going to happen. It happened pretty suddenly over the weekend. Typically, you know, after midterms, we see a lot of turnover uh, in most White Houses. And so a lot of people were looking at Klain and saying, you know, is he going to be leaving? And that was sort of also driven by the fact that Republicans flipped the House, which means that the posture in the White House is totally changing. They're not going to be passing a bunch of bills like they had been for a long time, where Klain had sort of this critical role working with progressives and trying to, to get progressives and moderates on the same page to pass legislation. And so it feels like, you know, this was just sort of a natural turnover point for him uh, to leave. I mean, he obviously got a lot done, but now Biden is looking to someone new. Jeff Science, like science, uh, we were joking about this beforehand, yes. if that's how you say it, um, is going to be taking over. He's a uh, he's a former corporate executive uh, who has a lot of experience running organizations. And uh, I remember him from back in the day when I was a tax reporter. I was covering the sort of um, abysmal launch of healthcare.gov and how people were trying to sign up for Obamacare and 
couldn't. It was a total disaster. He uh, was in the Obama administration at the time and sort of retooled that. More recently, he helped uh, President Biden basically ensured that these vaccinations for COVID were distributed to hundreds of thousands of people. He basically led the, uh, he was the COVID coordinator uh, to, to make sure that people were getting vaccinated, et cetera. So he did that and then left the White House and now he's coming back. He's sort of this low profile operator. You don't see him on TV very much. Uh, he's not going to be out there tweeting the way Ron Klain did all the time. Uh, so it's going to be a different posture from the White House that we're going to be seeing here. He's uh, he had a he has a reputation a lot like Klain did when he came in of just being a competent person who can manage a team and either take a bad situation and get it fixed or, you know, just keep the trains running on time. And, you know, competence is really the number one attribute you want in your chief of staff. And uh, I think Biden is betting that that's what he's going to get with Jeff Zients. The other big, big, big political event happening this week is in beautiful Orange County, California. The Republican National Committee is holding its winter meetings in beautiful Dana Point. They will be electing their chairperson for the next two years. Incumbent chair Ronna McDaniel is standing for re-election, but unlike the last several times she's run, she is facing competition. Is she not, Rachel Bain? Yeah, it's uh, it's getting pretty contentious. Uh, after the midterms, when Republicans had this sort of abysmal performance, uh, doing not nearly as well as a lot of people were expecting, she received a challenge from Harmeet Dillon, uh, who is this prominent attorney who backed, well, she's very close with Trump and MAGA world. Uh, she backed Trump's uh, attempt to try to get the Supreme Court to throw out the 2020 election results. And she also represented him before the January 6th investigative committee in the House. She's basically making this case that McDaniel is not doing everything she can at the RNC to make sure Republicans win. She's putting the blame squarely on her, saying that there needs to be turnover there. And she's got a lot of Trump supporters, Trump diehard uh, activists behind her. But she's also trying to reach out to actually never Trumpers who worry that Ronna McDaniel is too close with Trump and just does what he wants all the time. So it's sort of this campaign against Ronna McDaniel that brings together these very odd bedfellows. And, and Rachel, you had a chance to talk to Ronna McDaniel this weekend. And what did she tell you? So a lot of things, a lot of interesting things. Well, the first thing is, you know, when it came to the midterm elections, she said people are sort of misunderstanding what the job of the RNC is. They don't get to pick the candidates and they don't get to pick the campaigns that they run. They are a, quote, turnout operation that sort of builds the ground game and gets voters out. And when it comes to that, she basically made this argument that they turned out four million more Republicans than Democrats, that they did actually very well when it came to Republican turnout. The problem was a lot of Republicans, yes, voted for GOP candidates, but then turned against Republican candidates who were flawed and had a lot of uh, sort of controversial backgrounds. A lot of these guys think about, you know, Herschel Walker, who Trump sort of put his thumb on the scale for in Georgia. People just wouldn't turn out and vote for him. So, so she basically was deflecting blame uh, that 2022 was all her fault. She also was talking about and and not super happy with how scorched earth this whole campaign has become. Um, Dylan has supporters who have actually said that they're going to target and try to oust RNC members who support McDaniel. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And also uh, some of her allies have put their contact information on the internet to try to get Republicans, Trump supporters in the grassroots to contact them and sort of harass them and tell them not to support McDaniel. So it's kind of become really ugly. And she said, she told me that this is exactly the problem Republicans have right now. And, and that is that there's so much Republican on Republican warfare that they're not focusing on Democrats. And so she said, if you look at the kind of campaign that Dylan is running, this is not the way the RNC should be sort of handling things in the future. Right. And and another you know, sort of a, a, a key sort of factor in this race is her relationship with Trump. And um, whether it's too close, not close enough. You know, one question I have, Rachel, is where where is Trump in all this? What is, what is he said? What has he signaled? So he hasn't he hasn't weighed in. He's not endorsing uh, either person. Obviously, he was the one who chose uh, Ronald McDaniel for the job. But right now he's, you know, currently staying neutral. We'll see if that changes this week as we get closer to the vote, which is going to be on Friday. And I mean, McDaniel's in, she's in this sort of awkward position where Never Trumpers want her to push back on Trump more. But if she does so publicly, you know, that would also sort of upend her campaign to stay atop, you know, the RNC. So she has very much done pushback on Trump privately. We've seen reporting over the past few months, things she did during the midterms to try to make sure Trump didn't sort of upend a Republican campaign when he was mad at that candidate. But a lot of this kind of stuff she does privately. Um, You know, I asked her about Trump in the midterms and, you know, said a lot of Republicans privately blame him and say he was the anchor that really hurt the party. She wouldn't go there. She said he also endorsed candidates like J.D. Vance. She's not going to criticize him him publicly, obviously. But yeah, she just has this very tricky balance that she has to strike. She has to keep a good relationship with him. But she also, you know, has to realize that, you know, he he's potentially been a problem for, for the party. Not potentially. He was a problem for the party in 2022. One thing I think to watch this week is sort of what she says about 2024. A lot of Republicans are worried that the RNC is going to put their its thumb on the scale for Trump since he was the former president. And he's probably going to be trying to browbeat the RNC to do things that would be favorable to him. There are a lot of Republicans that want to run in the primary and are going to be running and they want to make sure the RNC stays neutral. She told me that is absolutely what they're going to be doing. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, a conversation we're going to see a lot in California this week. So one thing, you know, just the arithmetic of this race, there's 168 RNC members. Uh, McDaniel has a letter where more than 100 members have publicly endorsed her, which it would seem it's it's a simple majority to win. Right. So it would seem that she has this uh, buttoned up. So why has this become so combative? Why has this become such a big story if she, you know, if you believe what people are saying that this is, you know, she's already got this locked up. Yeah, I mean, that's a question that her supporters have been asking quite a bit. They sort of argue that, you know, she had this locked up and Dylan, by sort of launching this campaign and running this really pointed race against her, uh, is dividing the party at a time when they should be unifying ahead of 2024. But, you know, in recent days, because of this sort of grassroots campaign we've seen against McDaniels, there have been a bunch of state Republican parties and local parties who have come out against her uh, issuing votes of no confidence or other sort of rebukes. And so 
there is definitely pressure on some of these members to go the other way. Now, if it's going to be enough, we'll just have to see. Because right now, as you mentioned, Dylan does not have the numbers that she would need to actually defeat McDaniel. Right. She's claiming 60 some support and only 20 some are public, correct? And that's that's right. And one thing to keep in mind is this whole thing is a secret ballot. So technically people could say they're going to support Dylan or they could say they're going to support McDaniel and do something totally different behind the scenes. Right. And and that's that to me is the sort of interesting dynamic is who does a secret ballot favor here? Is it Ron McDaniel? Is it the person who is sort of the, you know, I'm going to say the establishment pick, but the incumbent who has all of these people on the record supporting her? It, when there's a pressure campaign, the secret ballot would seem to favor the establishment incumbent, wouldn't it? Because, yeah. you know, th- there's... I, from- from what I, the people I have talked to about this, most of them agree that that is right. I mean, there are um, state parties who are telling RNC members that they want them to vote for Dylan and against McDaniel. And, you know, we could very well be seeing them commit to doing so, but doing something completely different. Because the irony of this whole campaign, uh, Dylan's campaign, that is, is that Republicans privately will tell you Trump was a problem for them in 2022. But Dylan is you know, in a lot of ways, she is even closer to Trump than McDaniel is. I mean, her supporters are people like Charlie Kirk, uh, a lot of MAGA diehard Republicans who have sort of peddled false uh, narratives about the election, etc. So if, you know, you're a Republican that is worried about Trump, logically, you know, it seems, you know, kind of questionable why you would go for Dylan over McDaniel. So that'll be something interesting to watch this week. And you will be watching. You will be watching from beautiful Orange County. Am I am I wrong? I will. I am not looking forward to the six-hour plane ride, but I am looking forward to the weather. Well, we certainly look forward to hearing more from Rachel, and you can read all about what she finds out in the Playbook newsletter. And you should subscribe if you haven't at politico.com slash playbook. Our music is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Mike DeBonis. Thanks for listening. All employees should have the opportunity and tools to grow their careers, regardless of where they start. That's why Amazon offers 10 different programs designed to help employees advance their careers and move into higher paying roles within Amazon. Learn more at aboutamazon.com.